We're going to go into our, our teaching, which is uh, team building. We're going to be looking at the issue of team building this morning. And I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. In verses 8 to 17, we have a portrait of David's mighty men. And this survey illustrates the kind of people that David had called or chosen, men who followed him because he had a certain character about him, a charisma. He had a quality as well of courage and dedication, and people had a way of just aligning themselves with his own passion and vision. He attempted uh, mighty things, and uh, these kinds of men followed him. But one of the things I want us to see about this team that kind of was associated with David throughout his years and and ordered themselves around his life was the imagery here of a man who understood that he couldn't go it alone. But he needed to have other people who would be associated with him or with whom he would associate. Now, whether your business is one where you're the sole proprietor or whether you have a team of people with you isn't the issue. I think all of us need to recognize the need to be a part of a team, to create a team where you have a real sense of participation and synergy so that you have other people who are there. And uh, though I have a small team of people with Reflections Ministries and who do different things, I regard other people as part of that as well, both here in Atlanta and also in other parts of the world and uh, of this country and other world. And so consequently, it's needful for us to have healthy alliances where God uh, puts us together with people. Now, in, in particular, with these 30 mighty men, sadly, Uriah the Hittite was one of them which is somewhat poignant because Uriah the Hittite, you recall, David committed a real act of treachery against a man who had been that close to him by sending him off to battle to have him murdered because he was the one whose wife Bathsheba, David, was after. And so it's a very sad story that he's in there in that list. But he did spend time with these men in battle, and so they were welded together by the hot fires of warfare. These are people who struggled together. And I think it's when men struggle together over issues, over oppositions, over common enemies, that they are, that they are bound together in war. Uh, we certainly see that in any military encounter. That's why I was particularly struck by the absolute perfidy and treachery of that man who, who blew up his own men. I don't know if I've ever even heard of such a thing, of a man going against his own buddies in battle like that to do such a thing. It was particularly uh, heinous to me because of the uh, absolute treachery that's involved when men are brought together in in battle. It ought to be something that drives them together and they look after one another. There's a natural instinct. I'm not in this alone. And And if I fail, I'm letting my buddies down as well. It's this whole idea that I'm in there and it gives them courage to realize that they're not alone, but there are other people with them. And so we see in this concept that we have other people who help, it, help us to realize we are not alone in this world. He sacrificed for them as well because when three of them uh, risked their lives to get uh, drinking water for him in a battle, he refused to drink it and he actually poured it out into the ground. And that was not to degrade their work, but actually to uh, dignify it by saying, by, it was like a, almost like a drink offering. It was like pouring it before them as a sacrifice that they had made. And he sacrificed that as a de- out of a sense of devotion and love for what they had done for him. So it was a, it was a binding act that they, they, they had done, that they enjoyed victory together. 
and that uh, David honored his men as well because uh, he had a uh, phrase as their mighty men that he honored them and put them in a special position in his own life. So I think it's important for us to realize we're part of a team. If you go to Acts chapter 2 and verses 44 to 47, you see that the body of Christ is in such a way a synergistic team where all the believers, it says, were together and had everything in common. They sold their possessions and goods. This was at the, at the very beginning of the church when they were all gathered in an, a unique situation, having just come to faith in Christ. They were there from various countries uh, and provinces of the Roman Empire. And so in that situation, it was necessary for them to share with one another so, because they decided to stay longer than they were planning to on that journey because it was needful for them now to be built up in this new faith that they had actually uh, found. And so they shared everything in common. And every day, it says, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So there was a real sense of unity that, that uh, was formed in the early church. Let's take, first of all, a look now at team building and who God is. How would you see team building connected with the person of God? And the answer would be in the Trinitarian relationship. What we have here is a team that works together in another centered manner that has creativity and mutual regard. And whenever we see a team of people or an organism of people, we realize it's in one way a dim reflection of the divine trinity. One wonderful text for that is Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 14, which in the Greek, by the way, is one long run-on sentence. We add punctuation and periods and so forth, but in the Greek it uh, was one big long sentence, complex structure that extols the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in our redemption. Just as the three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit worked together in combination and in a creative way to create the heavens and the earth. Because we see the image here how the Father uh, is the one who's planned it, how the Son brings it into being because it was through the word of, this, of, of Christ that all things have been made. Remember, all things that came into being through him, the Lagos, apart from him, nothing's come into being that's come into being. So you have the Father, the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God was brooding upon the surface of the deep. So you have this Trinitarian work in creation, but you have a Trinitarian worship in the work in the new creation, redemption. So here we see how they work together in concert. Paul first speaks about the work of the Father in verses 3 through 6. And says, Praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. By the way, that's a wonderful text to realize even before you were in existence, God chose you and cherished you and said, I'm going to call you into being and I will treasure and, and, uh, uh, you and, and nurture you so that you will be holy and blameless in my sight. So from the eternity to eternity, we see the work, the favorable work, the benevolent work of God in our lives, which is not to be played down, but is to re be realized that he always had us in his mind and that there is never another plan. And uh, the idea is that even before we existed, he chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his, as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the, his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Then in verse 7 to 12, we, we switch from the work of the Father to the work of the Son. 
In him, that is to say, the one he loves, which is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now that's the work of the Son. So the work of the Son is extolled in 7 to 12, and then finally the work of the Holy Spirit in verses 13 to 14. Very systematic. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So what we here see is that the Father is the one who chose us and planned all this which would take place before the foundation of the world. The Son is the one who applies, brings it into be reality. He is the one who takes the work of the Father and purchases us with His own blood. In His own incarnation, He becomes the God-man, the mediator between God and man. And by purchasing us by His own blood, He makes it possible now for us to have a union with the Father because of paying for the penalty of our sins. Now being the sin-bearer, we can now enjoy righteousness before God in which the heavenly Father declares us righteous, which is what justification means, to be declared righteous by the living God. So that's purchased by, by Christ and then applied, number three, by the Holy Spirit who applies it and becomes a seal of our inheritance until the day when we see him. He's, he's actually sealed us. He's anointed us. He is now the one who's holding us as a pledge until we see him face to face. So we have this wonderful Trinitarian imagery here, and at the end of each of these phrases, concerning the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have the identical expression to the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory of the Father in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of the Son in verse 12, to the praise of the glory of the Spirit in verse 14. So that the symmetry is very evident there. All three are to be praised. All three participate creatively and perfectly in concert. So whenever we think of concert, we think of a concert, don't we? And we think of a, of a unity there of, out of diversity. When you go to a concert and you see the orchestra and you recall how they tune up. And so the first violinist plays a note. The others then tune to that note. So they're all tuned to the same sound. And there's that bizarre cacophony at first as you hear them trying to tune up and that strange sound that only an orchestra can make as they're tuning up. But then once it's calmed down, they are all now connected to the same instrument. And because they're tuned to the same instrument, they're tuned to each other. See, the concept there is very significant. You know, let us make man in our image. And there, there's a plurality there that I think allows for the later revelation of the fullness of the Trinity, implicit in the Old Testament, but explicit in the New. So we have this wonderful portrait here that us imagery is used elsewhere as well, um, that it's a powerful picture, isn't it? That there's a community. And again, I want to say that the biblical vision here is unique, this idea of God being a community of being, that the lover and the beloved and the love that flows between them. Remember what we said before, that it takes more than one person for there to be love. You can't just have love if it's just one being, one entity. 
you need to have another. You need to have a thou, I, thou. And thus, if there's only one person, it's just narcissus. And that's where we get the word narciss- narcissistic. From, a, from the image of the uh, myth of, in Ovid of the man who, of Narcissus, who fell in love with his own reflection, which isn't much of a relationship. So, uh, and a lot of people have fallen in love with their own image. And so there's no I-thou in that. There's no relationship. There's got to be another. That's why, again, when you and I experience something truly beautiful, what's our first impulse? I want to share it. In fact, you're willing to miss part of it so you, can break, so you can grab somebody you love and show it to them. Isn't that an important instinct in us? We all have that. And we, are, we treasure that relationship because we were meant for relationship. Why were we meant for relationship? Because we were created in the image of the one who is relationship. God is a community of being. Three equal, co-equal and co-eternal persons that are, that are identical in essence but distinct in the way that they subsist. Deeply mysterious, we'll never grasp what all that implies. But there it is. It's the basis for the one and the many, for unity and diversity, for true, the ultimate basis for teamwork and uh, where the synergy takes place. Synergy, by the way, can be defined as uh, putting elements together where the total is greater than the sum of the parts. And so what we have here is, is just that. So when you're in a team, then there's something more that's going on than just you and me or the various players team is able to do something that none of them could do individually. So we see creativity and mutual regard. And if we see that God's the ultimate foundation for that then, then we want to see how we are called to a common vision and a common purpose, just as we see the Trinity is. And this common vision and purpose can be illustrated in Mark chapter 3, where we work together in unity for the improvement of the whole rather than just to advance an individual member. That we realize that we are not in it for ourselves, but we're called to, to really improve the whole. We're part of something where we're not just in it as loners, but we are part of people who journey along the way with other, uh, other people to whom we're called into a covenant and of relationship. Which is another thing I want to em- em- emphasize about this concept of God in Scripture. He is a covenant maker and keeper which means that he enters into covenant. He cuts covenant with us and he says, I want to enter into, with, into that with you and I will never violate my covenant. I make a promise to you that I will never violate. Furthermore, he calls us to make covenant with other people and you become, at the end, the sum total of your real commitments. You and I are shaped by your commitments. And furthermore, I will say that you become truly human by being a person in relationship rather than being a monad or an individualist. We live in an individualistic culture. We are called to be people in relationship. And so rather than an individual, you are a person. And a person becomes more and more real as one commits oneself to other people with all the risk that that involves. But still, we're called to be more than just uh, lone players and lone wolves. So if we look at Mark Mark 3 in verses 13 to 19, we have the appointment of the 12 uh, apostles where he designated them apostles, it says in verse 14. I want you to note this little verse here in verse 14. It could easily be overlooked. What does it say? What was his purpose in doing so? Even before he sent them out, that that they might be with him. It's easily overlooked. Notice he wanted them to be with him. 
And there's something about a person who has been with Jesus that becomes distinctive, that he wants to, us to be with him, indeed to abide in him. And as we are with him, then he can send us out because we have gotten our power internally from him. In fact, in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, a parallel account, it informs us that Jesus spent the whole night beforehand in prayer before he made this selection because there were many, many followers but he had to pray all night long for the 12 that he would use, that he would pour his life into. Because from this point on, you will see him spending more and more time proportionately with the, with the 12 and less time proportionately with the multitudes. Because his intention is to build his life into these small number of people in view of the fact that his rejection is certain. Mounting opposition is one of the themes in the Gospels, and as he's going to be rejected and knows he will be rejected, he's investing all that he has into these people so that they will carry on this message. Again, the idea of succession and of investing is extremely important, of investing what God's given you, your life message, into the lives of other people is a very important thing to be passed from generation to generation until the Lord comes. It's my prayer and desire that I might be alive when He comes. And I think that that idea, Maranatha, is a good one. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. So I do pray that. I would like to be alive when He, when he comes for His own. However, I don't want to be presumptuous and say I will be. And so it's wise for us to, to see how can we invest into other people who will then invest in others as well. So you want a succession. You want to pre- prepare that. Not only in your business, because a wise a businessman is one who wants to build succession if it's a company that can continue on. There are different kinds of companies, different kinds of corporate visions. But it's wise for us to consider also how we invest our lives into other people and have mentorees. Uh, there, there's peer mentors and vertical mentors, and, uh, and it's good for us to consider people that you're mentoring, both on a parallel level and also on a vertical level. Now, when I say a vertical mentor, I mean a vertical mentor in two ways, up and down. There are some people that mentored me who are vertical mentors. They were ahead of me. Further down the road, I sought them out in many cases. Now, some of my mentors, my, some of my best mentors have been dead for centuries, but they speak even though they no longer are alive, yet they speak through their, through their written words, and you come to know them, and they mentor you. But then there are other, I've had other mentors throughout my life as well that I've been blessed with over the years. Uh, in fact, God put me in a greenhouse when I became a believer, and six months on into, into being a believer, I was a complete screwball, still using drugs, uh, psychedelics, and still uh, in, into occult uh, philosophies, Eastern mysticism, an ardent evolutionist, and I'm in Dallas Seminary as a six-month-old believer. This was a strange time for me. So I was going through, I, I'm thinking, this is cool. I'm going to show all these religions kind of point to Jesus. I, w- I really needed some work. And um, God in His grace, and, and there's a divine humor in this, put me in a greenhouse, a very conservative one at that. I had to cut my hair and wear a coat and tie to classroom, so I had terrible culture shock. Being from a hippie in Berkeley in 67, it was a hard thing for me to then be uh, immersed in that. I couldn't stand the place. Year, first year and a half, all my friends were non-believers, except God raised up some people, three people that kept me, that kept me there. And because of them, I was able to keep there, and God was gracious to me, but he put me in a context where eventually I began to get some wonderful mentors in addition to those three. So, so frankly, God was very good to me. 
And then people like uh, uh, Charles Ryrie and um, people like um, Howard Hendricks and uh, S. Lewis Johnson and uh, Bruce Walke and Haddon Robinson and many others became my mentors. And I sought them and spent time with them. And they were mentors who were so far down the road from me. They were vertical mentors. So that's the vertical side of it. And uh, right now, um, I still pursue living vertical mentors. Um, and one of them is Jim Houston, who was at Regent uh, College up in British Vancouver. But the uh, point is, it's good to have people who are further down the road than you are. Secondly, it's good. The vertical mem- mentoring goes the other way, where you become a vertical mentor for someone else. So as you get older, you need to consider who the people you're called to invest in. And frankly, I don't overlook your family. It's very amazing to me how people often overlook what's right in front of them. And frankly, your kids become a, an arena for where you, you need to become a mentor for them. And, and as they grow older, hopefully they become friends, not just children. But there's an idea or a desire for you to become a mentor, a resource for them. And having other people, too, in your life. where you And then the peer mentoring, horizontally, is where you have a Barnabas relationship with other men, where you work together in concert and where you encourage one another on a peer level. An accountability partner and a horizontal mentor, very much the, the same notion, that, that you are encouraging one another, holding one another accountable. Is a com- I think accountability is a component of mentoring, but not the whole. There's a larger whole. Mentoring to me is a more full-orbed idea where you also um, read things or think about issues together and you ask tough questions, the accountability component, but there's also something which you're seeking to nurture and nourish the person spiritually as well as hold them accountable. And there's a good literature on this as well, but we're not going to talk about that because we're getting far afield. Uh, so as I said Synergism is where you combine elements that, uh, when combined, there's an effect that's greater than the sum of the parts. And synergy, as opposed to synergism, is where you have a joint action and it increases the effectiveness of the member, each member on the team. So if we are in synergy then, that we want to have a context in which we are being developed. I find it fascinating that these men who are characterized by confusion, infighting, and self-interest eventually became a synergistic team as a result of the life and work of Christ, his resurrection, and the power of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost, wove them together into now a team, each one of whom ultimately gave the ultimate sacrifice and died as a martyr. A martyr means a witness. And they could each have spared their lives or saved their lives had they renounced Christ. If anyone, by the way, I parenthetically say, was in a position to know whether he was a fraud or not, these were the men who were. Nobody willingly gives his life for what he knows is a lie. We sometimes may die for, for something that's not true, but not for what you know is a lie. These are people who knew that they'd seen the resurrected Christ, and they, they died, each one, except for John, who apparently uh, uh, continued on. But apart from him, they all perished in that way. It's an organism that manifests both unity and diversity, the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and Romans 12. Write those down and I encourage you to study the unity and diversity theme in all, all three of those texts. Ephesians chapter 4, you can find the verses. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. 
In, in each case, he talks about how in concerning spiritual gifts, there is a unity and a diversity, and that in the body, and the, and the body of Christ is an organism, each of the parts has a different function to play. So you have these various cells, which are masterworks of creation, that merge together to form tissues. And then these tissues come together to form organs. And these organs come together to form systems. For example, the lymphatic system. And these systems come together to create a homeostatic system called the human body that's extremely complex and wonderful. And so each of, each of these levels, there is a diversity and a unity on each of those levels, whether they're, uh, or, uh, whether they're cells, tissues, organs, or systems. There's this wonderful complexity. The next text I'd have us turn to uh, is um, Mark chapter 2, and I'll only say a word about that. In Mark chapter 2, we have a portrait of the choosing of Matthew, or Levi, otherwise known as Levi. I mention him specifically in verses 14 to 17 because Levi, or Matthew, was a tax collector. He was different. He was an odd duck compared to the other ones that he'd chosen, basically uh, Galileans, working men, mostly fishermen, all with strong Jewish backgrounds. Then he grabs this tax collector. Now, I want you to understand the lowest of the low is a publican or a tax collector, that Jesus would include such a man is an incredible thought among his crew. It was already a motley crew, but this is, this is even worse. This is, the, the tax collectors were regarded as sellouts to the Romans, and they were more vilified and hated than any other Jewish people. And yet he chose such a man. He also chose Simon the Zealot, who was about as far politically as you could get from, from the Galileans. It's, it's an amazing diversity that he chose. As well, he also chose one whom he knew would betray him, another, and that would be Judas. But the point here is you have this extraordinary diversity, some of whom are real positional specialists who contribute something to the mix. And whenever you have a team like this, what you're going to have in a team when you have a diversified team, it's tougher to lead, but the benefits are greater. And so you often have odd, uh, a wide spectrum, which means that what's going to happen is they're going to have individual strengths, but they're going to have different perspectives and orientations. And you can look at that. And finally, the last text I would invite you to consider would be Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20, where he gives them a common vision as a team. And this is Peter's confession of Christ in, in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. Who do men say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? The ultimate question. And to recall Peter's confession of him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's this is an image of purpose. And that they are called, and Peter was to be a significant leader in the body of Christ. And it's based upon his confession of Jesus and their growing unification under that common purpose and common vision that they are capable of really accomplishing extraordinary things in the book of Acts as a result of the resurrected Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, but furthermore, the unified purpose and vision that they were given, that they are serving the Christ, the Son of the living God.